In the beginning of the eighth chapter of Yoshua, God commands Yoshua to assemble his army and attack the Ai once again. So recall that in the seventh chapter, they failed in attacking the Ai and they were humiliated in defeat. But following that, the people rooted out the sin that was the cause of their defeat. And this time, God is promising success. He commands Yoshua to attack and directs him to have no fear. They were instructed to ambush the city and to completely destroy it along with all of its inhabitants, just like they did to the city of Yericho. So Yoshua went ahead. He assembled a group of 30,000 men to attack the city. In his plan, 5,000 men would lay in ambush west of the Ai, between the Ai and Beit El. He himself would lead a unit of troops directly toward the northern front entrance of the city, and then he would expect a counterattack coming out of the front entrance. He would flee the counterattack with his men, just like they did the first time they attacked, and they were defeated. In this way, though, by fleeing the counterattack, Yoshua planned to draw out all of the residents of the city after them. And then, once the city had been emptied out, the ambush group, lying in wait on the west side, would enter the defenseless city and destroy it, setting it on fire like God had commanded. And so it went as planned. Yoshua led an attack toward the northern entrance in the morning. The army of the Ai acted exactly as expected, and they confidently chased out the Israelite army toward the desert. They left the city open and defenseless. God then commanded Yoshua to gesture with his spear toward the city, and he does so. At the beckoning of this gesture, the ambush unit arose from its encampment, entered the city, and set it on fire. At that point, the army of the Ai turned around, and they saw smoke rising from their city. They became confused and terrified, not sure whether to turn back to save their property or to continue forward, pursuing Yoshua and his army. The Israelites, who were being pursued, then turned around, and, as the Pasuk expresses, the fleers became the pursuers. The Israelites now had the enemy of the eye surrounded on both sides, and they wiped out all of the soldiers. The verse tells us that they killed 12,000 people, all of the residents of the eye. They burnt the city down, and they rendered it a tel olam, an eternal mound, never to be rebuilt. They did partake of the animals and other plunder, non-human plunder, like God had allowed them. Then, Yoshua had the king of the Ai hanged on a tree until nightfall. When evening came, they took down the king's corpse, and they flung it down at the entrance of the city, piling a mound of stones on it. The Pasuk tells us that that mound remains until this day, at least the day of the writing. Then, Yoshua erected a stone altar on Har Eval, Mount Eval, just like God had commanded his predecessor, Moshe. They brought animal offerings to God at that, at that altar. They brought olot, which are offerings that are burnt entirely for God, and shlamim, or peace offerings, which, in which the human sacrificers can share in the meat. They wrote the text of the Torah of Moshe onto the stones in this great celebratory moment, again, as God had commanded Moshe in the book of Devarim. And then all of the people stood in the valley, between Mount Eval and Mount Gerizim, including all of the dignitaries, all of the priests carrying the Aron Kodesh, the Holy Ark, half of the people facing one mountain and half facing another. Yoshua then read all of the words of the blessings and the curses to them, 
as commanded in the book of Devarim. And that is how the eighth chapter of Yoshua ends. So for my analysis of this chapter, I plan to do something a little different than I've done for the previous ones. Rather than providing two glimpses of ways that social movements have used, different social movements have used the story of this chapter, I'm going to give you two sides of the same dispute. This is a dispute in the modern Israeli education system, and it's a, an important religious political fault line in Israel today. Specifically, the way the different sides of this dispute relate to the story of the I, as described in this chapter, helps frame what's at stake in this particular culture war. So first, to give some background. The Israeli public education system includes the Book of Yeshua in its standard curriculum for the fourth grade. And uh, in teaching Yeshua to fourth graders, schools often use these workbooks that are printed specifically for this purpose in line with the uh, standard curriculum. And for many schools, the workbooks for the Book of Yeshua are actually the primary text through which the fourth graders encounter the book. Rather than, rather than going chapter by chapter in the text, they, they, use, they, they use the workbooks and they approach it at a distance with guiding questions and activities. So a sample of these workbooks was reviewed in a recent article by Galia Zalmanson Levy. Zalmanson Levy is a scholar and a social activist who heads up something called Hamerkaz Le Pedagogia Habikortit, which is the Center for Critical Pedagogy at Kibbutzim College, uh, which is a college for training educators in Tel Aviv. Zalmanson Levy wrote an article in 2005 called Hora'at Sefer Yoshua Vehakibush, in other words, teaching the book of Joshua in its relationship to the occupation. This article appeared in a 2005 volume called Militarism Bechinuch, or Militarism in Education. So Zalmanson Levy reviewed four important fourth grade Sefer Yoshua workbooks, which were produced by four major educational publishing houses in Israel. And at the outset, she notes that the four books were quite similar. Now, to get to the issue that we're discussing in this chapter, the uh, story of the I, Zalmanson Levy noted that every workbook had at least one chapter dedicated to the story of the conquest of the I. And these chapters focused on the brilliance of the military strategy that we discussed, of Yoshua attacking from the front, drawing out the people of the city, the ambush then coming in and destroying the city. Um, some also emphasize the Israeli Defense Forces' value of commanders providing a personal example and leading their troops with the uh, slogan of Acharai, after me, follow me. Um, some books emphasize that Yoshua leading the army himself was exemplary of this value of the IDF today. Some books also point to similarities between the Battle of the Ai and the battle in a place called Suba in the 1948 War of Independence. However, none of the books mention the moral concerns of killing civilians, which of course is what the text describes happened. They killed 12,000 people, all of the residents of the city. So in Zalmanson Levy's view, these workbooks squander a valuable teaching opportunity. Right? They approach the story of the eye, they describe its the military ingenuity through which they, they destroyed the city, and the workbooks relate this military brilliance to 
modern-day military concerns to the Israeli defense to the Israel Defense Forces, but by linking the story of the I to the story of contemporary Israel, the books failed to then discuss the important differences in military norms between the biblical time and today, norms about harming and killing civilians. In fact, by teaching this story and comparing it to the IDF today, while not mentioning any moral concerns about killing civilians, the books seem to imply to these fourth graders that what was acceptable then is also acceptable now in today's wars. Zalman Sunlevy in this article mentions a number of other important concerns that she encountered in the books. For instance, the workbooks discuss, of course, the destruction of the city of Yericho in the sixth chapter. The workbooks ask the children to describe the emotions felt by the Israelites upon their defeat of Yericho, upon the destruction of the city. Um, in at least one of these activities, a workbook provided a box of words for students to use in their describing the way that the Israelites felt. Some of the words were happiness, gratitude, hope, faith in God, and again, nothing about regret or sorrow or at least ambivalence about having killed all of the civilians. Similarly, the book, similarly, Zalman Levy's article notes that some of the books discuss the curse that Yeshua proclaimed upon anybody who would try to rebuild Yericho, the curse that that person's children would die. The books discuss the curse, discuss what may have been the reasons behind it, what it may symbolize, but again, nothing about the seeming cruelty of the curse. Similarly, throughout the workbooks, the geography of the biblical story is mapped onto modern Israel in a way that seems to equate ancient Israel and the state of Israel today, and in a way that doesn't distinguish between what today is considered Israel proper and the lands over the Green Line, which depending on your political perspective, are known as the West Bank, or Yehuda and Shormon, Judea and Samaria. Um, in Zalman Sunlevi's view, again, this is her view, I'm not, not quite yet giving my own. In Zalman Sunlevi's view, um, again, the books, by failing to distinguish, by failing to explain um, what the relationship of ancient Israel is to modern Israel, by instead considering them this one continuous identity, she sees a diff a, a, an important moral challenge, that the students are led to equate the standards of these biblical battles of the conquest and today's standards. She also addresses the workbook's lack of attention to ethical concerns in the story of Rachav. In other words, there isn't any consideration of the fact that Rachav is a prostitute and what that should, and what that should convey to people reading the story today. Uh, and the story of Achan, who his sin in stealing from the spoils in the city of Yericho was what led to the first battle of the eye, the defeat at the eye. Uh, the books don't don't discuss any any sense of any sense of um, concern of regret for the way that Achan and his family had to suffer for his sin. Um, another important thing is a precursor to Zalman Son Levy's work, which is mentioned in her article, and that was a groundbreaking study by Dr. George Tamarine, a psychology professor at Tel Aviv University, published back in 1963. Tamarine asked over 1,000 Israeli school children, ages 8 to 14, from different demographic and religious backgrounds in different schools, uh, a questionnaire. The questionnaire that they were provided reminded the students of the story of Yericho. Some, it provided a fact pattern that sounded like the story of Yericho, in which the, uh, the army of Yoshua at the instruction of God, 
comes in to to conquer the land of Israel, attacks a city, defeats it, and destroys it completely, killing all of the inhabitants. The questionnaire then asked the students, again these are ages 8 to 14, whether or not Yoshua acted properly. And it added to that a question about whether or not the IDF would act properly if it would do the same thing in a battle against an Arab village in a modern war of Israel. Other children, part of this study, other children who were not asked that question were provided a different questionnaire. This other questionnaire sketched an almost identical hypothetical, the story of a fictitious Chinese General Lin who lived 3,000 years ago. General Lin was commanded by a Chinese war god to attack a city and to wipe out all of the city's inhabitants. And you can probably see where this study is going. 60% of the students totally approved Yoshua's actions and even were the IDF to follow their, their example in war against an Arab population today. 20% of the students only partially approved uh, of, this, of this course of action and 20% of the students disapproved entirely. However, among the students that were asked about the fictitious Chinese story, only 7% totally approved the actions of General Lin, 18% partially, and 75% of the students totally disapproved of his actions as being entirely unethical. Tel Aviv University refused to publish the results of this study. When they were ultimately published, they provoked a major scandal in the world of Israeli academia. Tamarin characterized his findings as, and this is my translation, a harsh indictment of the Israeli educational system. He posited that teaching the Book of Yoshua uncritically to small children leads necessarily to intolerance, nationalism, and outdated attitudes. He concluded by advocating a radical overhaul of the curriculum in Israeli public schools and of the methods of teaching the texts in the curriculum, the biblical texts and others. Tamarine was fired from Tel Aviv University in 1971, and he and allies of his in the world of Israeli academia claimed that his dismissal resulted from pressure that the education ministry exercised on the university. So let's step back a moment from this debate. We see two ways that the story of the I is being used on two sides of a dispute in the regarding the Israeli educational system. Some of the workbooks that are used to teach the story to fourth graders use the story to illustrate military ingenuity as something to celebrate about Israelite heritage, about Israeli heritage, because they are one and the same. However, on the other side of the dispute, those who see a problem in teaching these texts uncritically to children see the story of the I as one of a few examples of something that is so damaging to young students. Basically, the idea that students, students are, are, are become accustomed to this sort of warfare, that the idea of killing, killing the civilian inhabitants of a city is entirely normalized to them when they're learning about war. Now, military service is, of course, sacred in Jewish-Israeli society, and with good reason, in a country that's surrounded by enemies and has known war since its inception, has had to fight to defend itself since its inception. Fourth graders are taught the story of the eye as a celebration of this Israeli military value, military ingenuity. So Zalman Son Levi, however, 
saw this story as a symbol of decadence in the Israeli educational system. She also noted the tension between kibush ha'aretz, which is a term used to refer to conquest of the land. It's a term that's used to describe the, the main thrust of the book of Yeshua, the task that Yeshua was given by God to conquer the land for the people of Israel. The term kibush ha'aretz is used in that biblical context to refer to a sacred conquest. But today, in modern Hebrew and in contemporary Israeli political discourse, kibush means occupation. It's a word that refers to the ongoing Israeli military rule over the Palestinian population. So as a left-wing activist who supports Israeli withdrawal from the West Bank and a two-state solution, Zalman Sanlevi was, was fearful of losing the negative connotation of the word kibush, of students encountering this concept of kibush as a positive value. For her, that was perhaps the most frightening normalization of all. From my standpoint, without taking any side in this dispute, as it's not my right to do so, I find it interesting to consider how this controversy can be characterized in two very different ways. On the one hand, you can look at this as a dispute over whether or not biblical books like Yeshua have a role to play in Israeli education and Israeli life at all. In this view, the workbooks that are given to fourth graders um, teach the stories to them and, and consider the book to have a message, an important message to give to students and to have a role to play in the upbringing of Israeli children today. Whereas on the other hand, the activists who oppose them seem to be taking the position that the book of Yeshua does not have a role to play and that it's dangerous and should be kept away from students. That's one way to look at the controversy. Another way, and a little bit more subtle, perhaps a little bit more correct, is that this is a dispute over educational and critical methods. Both sides value teaching of the Jewish tradition, including the book of Yeshua, but they're arguing about how it should be done. One side is, is, one side is advocating teaching the stories of Yeshua to children, not criticizing the texts, not engendering a disrespect or, or a doubt for their sanctity among the kids, but at the same time emphasizing the positive values in them, values like military brilliance, like excitement of the people upon, upon receiving this gift from God of the land of Israel. Whereas the other side is emphasizing the dangers that come from uncritical education, uncritical instruction of morally outdated texts to children. And in this view, the dispute, the dispute is over how should it be done? What's the right way to teach Sefer Yoshua to fourth graders? Perhaps should it be taught to them at all, or maybe should it be delayed to a later point in the curriculum? So thank you very much for joining me again. Tune in next time for the ninth chapter of Yoshua and the story of the people of Givon.